Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Excuse me, Kion. Uh, that's Pastor Kion. Pastor Kion. Wait, wait, wait. Pastor Kion? Greg, I've been called to a ministry far greater than me. I've started my own church, and I've gathered my own flock around me. I don't see anybody except the sheep. <laughs> I see you've never read the Bible. It's mainly about sheep and lambs and sheepfolds and sheep shanks. From the text, it's very clear to me that God wants us to deliver the good news to sheep. Ah, uh, I think sheep are more like uh, a metaphor. Stand back, Satan, pretending to be Greg. For it is written that you will come unto the good shepherd and cloud her mind with words from college English courses. Where is that written? Book of Justin, chapter 11, verse 12. Book of Justin? He went bankrupt. I said he was in chapter 11. Boom. How do you like that one, sheep? Thank you, thank you. I'm here until Judgment Day. Don't forget to tithe. So that's your ministry? Standing on the hill telling dumb jokes to sheep? No, it's so much more than that. We believe... Hold on a second. You! Be gone, evildoer! I exile and abjure you! You are banished from this flock! What was that? Transgender sheep and wants to be a ram. I don't hold with that. For in Ocarina 2713, we readeth, The gay sheep, it is an abomination. Verily also is the speckled and spotted sheep. The fat sheep is an abomination. And the sheep with the muddy feet is an abomination. For it drinketh from the stream, and then the mud getteth in the water. And I'm like, hey, I drink that water too. Ocarina 2713? It might be Pennsylvania 65,000. Kion, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say you don't know anything about the Bible, and yet somehow you've come up with a theology so punitive and exclusionary that it seems unlikely you'll have any parishioners. They're sheep. They don't get to make a lot of decisions. Yeah, but people do. That's why our show today is about evangelical Christians who have chosen a more progressive path. And now he runs a hot Bikram Methodist church, Colin McEnroe. I did for a while, anyway. Uh, the Methodists like it. You kind of get warmed up. You get loosened up. It's about 103 degrees. You can really stretch as a Methodist. So actually, uh, as many people who listen to this show know, I, I do attend a church these days. Uh, I attend a place called Riverfront Family Church. And when people ask me what kind of church it is, this is kind of how I answer. I have to, like, draw a big breath. I say, it's evangelical, but it's really progressive and really, like, about a third of the, the people there are lesbian couples. Um <laughs> Because it's like if I just stop uh, with it's an evangelical church, eyebrows go up, right? Uh, here in the Northeast in particular, it's uh, a, a thing nobody would expect if they knew me, if they'd known me for the last uh, 40 or 50 years of my life. It just wouldn't occur to them I'd be going to an evangelical church. Those, with the quotes around it, are not my values. Uh, except that there are, it turns out, and I would have said the same thing, I might add. It would be the last place I would have thought I would have wound up. So, But it turns out there are progressive evangelical churches where I, ideas like being LGBTQ friendly, like being feminists, like being pluralist to a certain degree, uh, by, be, by uh, being 
uh, tolerant of all kinds of people uh, and embracing and inclusive of all kinds of people, that that exists. And it could be argued, it probably will be argued today, that it's a little bit of a movement here in this country, that there's, uh, it's not very well documented. Their meetings don't get covered quite so much, but uh, we tend to cover all the stuff that's been going on in the evangelical, evangelical church over the last three or four decades, uh, its rightward drift and its synonymousness with uh, the moral majority, the religious right. Uh, anyway, uh, I shouldn't be talking. Our guests should be talking. So let me tell you who the guests are, and then we can get them talking. Uh, Deborah Jian Lee is a journalist and the author of Rescuing Jesus, How People of Color, Women, and Queer Christians Are Reclaiming Evangelicalism. Uh, she's joining us from the studios of WBEZ in Chicago. In studio is uh, my fellow Riverfront family church communicant, Eliza Aralampalam. Uh, she's a, um, an associate pastor at Riverfront Family Church, uh, which is, as we say, that kind of progressive evangelical church. It's in Glastonbury. Joining us by phone is Randall Balmer, who is chair of the Department of Religion at Dartmouth and a fellow at Dartmouth's Ethics Institute. He's the author of Redeemer, the Life of Jimmy Carter. You want to talk about a pro- progressive evangelical? That might be one. Uh, anyway, so we're going to start um, with you, Deborah, and, and your book sketches this, lines this out in a really um, helpful way. So why is it that when I say evangelical Christian, particularly to a bunch of people in Connecticut, they immediately think religious right, opposed to gay rights, probably an all-white congregation or something like that, where they all absolutely, without exception, vote Republican? Well, I think you can look at just how the religious right has come to dominate the narrative over the last four decades. And they've come to define what it means to be a quote-unquote true evangelical. And that's been defined by conservative, white, straight men. And when you look at the history of the evangelical movement, there's actually always been progressives and there have always been conservatives. And they've kind of had this tug of war over who gets to define what it means to be an evangelical. And in the last uh, several decades, it's been the religious right, the conservatives, who have really come out on top um, and taken ownership of that label. So that's an, this is an interesting question. I'm going to ask um both uh, uh, Randall Balmer and Liza um, to answer it in their respective ways. Because, you know, um, Deborah just used the phrase, you know, who gets to define what it means to be an evangelical? And it, it is a term we're going to be slinging around all day. And the question would be, does it have one unified definition? Does that word evangelical mean a thing that we can all agree about? So, Randall Balmer, I'll start with you. What does what does the term evangelical even mean? Well, I generally use a, a three-part Trinitarian definition and evangelical is somebody who believes in the Bible as God's revelation to humanity, and that prompts many evangelicals to uh, engage in what I call uh, literalism, or more precisely, selective literalism as they approach the Bible. The second part of the definition is that uh, an evangelical is somebody who believes in the centrality of a conversion or a born-again experience, which comes from the third chapter of St. John in the New Testament, when Nicodemus visits Jesus by night to ask how he can enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus replies in the King James Version or translation, you must be born again. Some other translations have it as born from above. And the third part of the definition is that an evangelical is somebody who believes in the importance of evangelism or bringing others into the faith. And this comes from the end of uh, the Gospel of St. Mark in the New Testament, when Jesus charges his followers to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So uh, in answer to your question, is it 
a narrow definition or not, I, that's a fairly broad definition. And one of the things I would emphasize is that within that broad definition, you have an extraordinarily vast diversity. You have Pentecostals, uh, Charismatics, Fundamentalists, Neo-Evangelicals, uh, more and more Hispanic Evangelicals, and even as uh, your guests are, are, are talking about today, um, Evangelicals who want to expand the bounds of uh, acceptability in terms of uh, sexual orientation and so forth. All right, so, and Liza, uh, give me your take on that. I mean, for for you, maybe even personally, as somebody who self-identifies evangelical, what does that mean? Yeah, I would agree with everything that was said. Um, one thing I would probably add to it is an emphasis on personal relationship with God, so reading the scriptures yourself on a daily basis and um, hearing from God yourself. Um, and I think all of these things are true. I was actually talking to my mom about this a couple of days ago, like what is evangelical, because the term is so important. And one thing that she said, which I think is absolutely true, is that, Above all else, it's really a subculture. Um, there are a lot of people in all denominations who would call themselves evangelical who, or who wouldn't. So you can't necessarily put a, a denominational label on it. Some Pentecostals would say, yes, I'm an evangelical. Some wouldn't. You know, I know Episcopalians who would say that they were evangelical. Um, but more than anything else, it's the way people talk, the kind of music they listen to. Um, of course, all, some theology that they believe too, but there's a lot of diversity in that. So I think my mom was like, you know, if if you see one, you know it. And I, I think above all else, it's just kind of that subculture. I think I've, I've had that. We should say that uh, so Liza's mom is the pastor of this church, and she's been on this show, Nancy Butler, more than once. And uh, in my conversations with her, there's sort of a similar thing. that there's st- There are styles and tropes, styles of worship, things that are said, ways in which faith is expressed. But let me press up you on one thing, Liza, which is, and I, I do think this is maybe an area, and there may be other ones, Deborah may be able to cite other ones, where the way it gets defined then makes, has something to say about whether, uh, how much room there is for, for progressives. So um, uh, we're going to be playing some clips from a speech that your mother gave in Minneapolis uh, about a month ago, but we're, we're not going to play this clip, but she, she talks in the speech about uh, a moment in which Rick Warren, uh, the, pa- the evangelical, evangelical pastor Rick Warren, is on TV with Larry King, and Larry King says at one point, so you're saying to me that Gandhi is in hell, but somebody who's just sort of been a jerk most of his life, but sort of did the right things, you know, maybe towards the end of his life and and, and sought the kind of atonement that you're talking about, that person is in heaven. Um, and Rick Warren says, yeah, that, that's that's the good news. And, and <laughs> Sounds to, like to, great to, news. Yeah, yeah, to quote your mother, uh, Larry King looks at him and says, <laughs> like he thinks, you must be effing crazy. Yeah. Um, so, but that's, I mean, besides the humor and ridiculousness of that, that's a, to me, that's a key point. To, to what degree is Jesus and Christianity, what, to what degree are those the exclusive means of enlightenment, grace, salvation? And, and a lot of evangelicals would say that's true. That, that, yeah, that's- I think a lot of evangelicals would. Um, I think the emphasis is that Jesus is kind of it, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be, in my opinion, a Christian to be saved. I think following the teachings of Jesus, even if you don't even know who Jesus is, um, that's possible. So I think evangelicals would all uniformly agree that Jesus is our number one role model. Um, But 
salvation, yes, the majority would say that you need to have a personal relationship with Christ to be saved. But what exactly that means to different people, I think there is room for interpretation. So, Deborah, in your book, you sort of lay out a series of kind of what we might call fault lines between uh, what that what is thought of as the tradition traditional bulk of evangelical Christian practice and ways in which these kind of fractures um, break off into smaller splinters of people who who want to explore some aspect of them of themselves or some aspect of society and reality. What would you, what would you say are the major ones? Well, in my book, I look at the major themes of race, gender, and sexual orientation, um, primarily because these are identity groups that have been traditionally marginalized from the evangelical world. Um, When you look at how evangelical theology has been defined over the past um, several decades, it's been defined through, it's been passed through the filter of um, conservative, white, male, Um, history, privilege, culture, white supremacy. And it's all while declaring this theology as unbiased orthodoxy. So when um, groups who are um, people of color, women or queer Christians don't pass this kind of litmus test of what it means to be truly evangelical, um, their theologies are are either shunned or at best shelved as secondary or specialty theologies. So Along the fault lines of race, gender, and sexual orientation or gender identity, um, there today we're seeing a lot of movement towards um, making an evangelical faith that is inclusive of these groups that have traditionally been on the margins of the evangelical community. So, uh, Deborah, to me, uh, they're not all the same thing, and and I'll explain what I mean. And I think Liza at least may want to, if not exactly push back, at least uh, explore one or two of these. So, I mean, it seems to me that um, evangelicals, because, in fact, they use the Bible as the primary source for everything, you know, maybe they look at the Bible and they can see some things about women being subservient or whatever. They, they sort of use that as a, essentially an anti-feminism uh, ar- argument uh, and and— they also see or claim they can see things about um, gender, about sexuality and sexual orientation that um, lead them to take the positions that they may take on the LBGTQ community. Um, but you know, in the area of color, I mean, the, it's hard to sort of say that the Bible says a lot of things about race unless you're some kind of crazy white supremacist, you know, uh, separatist or something. That that this seems to be more a kind of sociological split, the kind of thing that you're talking about. So, Deborah, I first want to ask you about this, and then I think Eliza may have a slightly different uh, take on this. So, why would evangelicalism have anything to do with race? Sure. Well, I think that rhetorically. Um, the evangelical world has consistently come out against racism, but when it comes to how they've dealt with it in practice, um, evangelical white evangelicals have kind of defined the what it means to be uh, a true person of faith. And in doing so, they have excluded the way that people's own culture will shape their theology and shape their own personal Christian faith. So even though, you know, the evangelical faith kind of is is grounded and rooted in this idea of equality through Christ and the fact that there's no uh, free nor slave, uh, Jew or Gentile, you know, essentially we're all equal, um, despite those that... Uh, 
proclaimed belief in practice, uh, that's just just not the case. Historically, uh, when you look at how white evangelicals have used, uh, how white supremacy has just kind of been a thread throughout the evangelical history from from slavery to Jim Crow to um, either being silent during the civil rights movement or opposing the civil rights movement to forming segregated white academies, um, race uh, has absolutely just been uh, a part of the kind of troubled church history um, in terms of how evangelicals have dealt with this issue of race relations. Liza, how does that strike you? Um, I think as a country, we all have a long way to go in terms of how we view race. And evangelicals, I don't think, are any exception or necessarily are any better than any of the rest of us. Um, However, I do feel like if you compare, from my experience, evangelical megachurches and Pentecostal churches to mainline churches, particularly in New England, they are much more racially diverse um, than your average UCC church in Glastonbury, Simsbury, Avon, you know, fill in the blank. So I think, yes, we all have a long way to go, but um, the churches that I, the evangelical churches I have attended are much more diverse than their mainline counterparts. Although although it's possible for both of you to be right, I think, because in fact, and maybe Randall can help us out a little bit there too, that, you know, on the one hand, um, uh, the evangelical churches uh, on an individual basis may be kind of integrated uh, in certain circumstances. But on the other hand, the movement itself has been more interested in internal transformation than external social change and social transformation. Um, and, and maybe, uh, Randall, you can help us out a little bit with this, that um, one thing you could say is that the culture war didn't really start about abortion or homosexuality or contraception or anything about uh, anything like that. But it could be argued that the culture war started about race. Uh, well, it, in fact, it did. It, it had to do with the revocation of the tax exemption at Bob Jones University in 1976. But I'd like to go back a little bit farther and say, that I think that the the era of the religious right over the last 40 years, beginning in 1979, is, I think, the great aberration in evangelical theology and politics. If you look back at the 19th century, evangelicals were in the vanguard of social reform movements dedicated toward the abolition of slavery uh, for uh, common schools or public schools as we would know them today, because they understood that education was important for those in the lower rungs of society in order to become upwardly mobile. They were very active in various peace movements and peace crusades, particularly in the antebellum period. And they also advocated strongly for equal rights for women, including voting rights, which was a radical idea in the 19th century. So I think that historical perspective is awfully important here. Yes, you're absolutely correct. The religious right began in defense of segregation academies in the 1970s. But that itself was an aberration from the longer scheme of evangelical activism in American history. So, um, Deborah, one of the things you uh, cite in your book repeatedly is a study by Emerson and Smith uh, of evangelicals. And one of the things that they found in, in polling them and questioning them is that white evangelicals support rather than challenge the system, capital T, capital S. They like the system. They, they feel they can reap its fruit. And they have a hard time accepting the idea of structural inequalities that favor whites, that it's hard for white evangelicals to imagine a social movement seeking change because they don't see the structure as inherently flawed. Yeah, and I think a lot of this comes down to what Emerson and Smith uh, cite as homogenous communities built into the system of 
the, what we have as the evangelical church growth movement or mega church movement is this idea of the homogenous unit principle. And this is a principle that's been taught in seminaries and disseminated uh, throughout America, American evangelical churches. It's this idea that if you want your church to grow rapidly, the best thing to do is to have homogenous communities, both in terms of race and in terms of socioeconomic status. So as a result of that, people have the, the white evangelical church has kind of been raised in this very insular community that that has a hard time understanding um, what how other people live, how people of color face a systemic oppression, how um, they see social problems coming from unfair systems and historic oppression. Um, the white evangelical, and again, I'm, I'm talking specifically about conservative white evangelicals. I don't want to suggest that this is the entire, every single white evangelical believes this, but um, the, when you look at the, the conservative white evangelical community, their, their view of social problems um, they believe that social problems come from negative relationships and poor choices made by individuals. And it's very hard for them to understand that um, systems have a, have a place, have a role in, in why we have the kind of uh, injustice that um, people of color, people who are minorities in terms of uh, being sexual minorities or being women, um, how these people face um, a different kind of America than people who are in purely privileged positions. So, um, Liza, uh, first of all, I think one of the other things we all struggle with is sort of like how to talk to people about this and how to talk to be each other about this. I said at the beginning, I'm almost borderline uncomfortable to tell people here in Connecticut, all my liberal Democrat friends, that I go to an evangelical church because, boom, they're going to project all kinds of things onto that. A Baptist and, church, nonetheless. A Baptist even church, worse. even, yeah. <laughs> Although I maintain that we are Quaptists. We are Quaker Baptists. But, um, True. Um, but in college, you kind of had the opposite problem, right? Not really being comfortable telling people that you're a Democrat. Yeah. Um, so I, my husband and I went to Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, a very liberal university, but it's still Georgia, right? So we were both involved in InterVarsity, which Deborah talks about in her book as kind of this church, campus evangelical organization. Um, and I was I grew up in Connecticut, so a Democrat, much like many other folks in Connecticut. Um, and I was I didn't know a single other person in my entire Christian group um, who was liberal. And I, you know, 18 years old, I think. And Deborah talks a lot about this in her book, too, this desire to belong and the amazing things that the evangelical community has, which is, um, you know, close community and acceptance and love and friendship and all of that that you want freshman year when you're an insecure college kid. Um, and my husband and I actually had a really funny moment. We both went to this. We weren't dating or anything then, but we um it was 2004 in the Bush Kerry election year, and we both secretly went to this um, Young Dems event where we um, went to go watch the returns, to, and we were both kind of obviously rooting against Bush for Kerry. Um, and we saw each other there at this event, and there was this moment of like, wait, you're you're a Democrat, or are you just here to spy, or you're a Democrat, or are you just here to spy? And then we we both realized that the other one was a we're secret liberals in, in the midst of this conservative group, um, much like Deborah talks about the um, queer underground at Biola University. And I think that exists in many places. And there, but there is a, a fear of of speaking out because you're afraid that you're going to be excluded from this community that has a, a lot of amazing, wonderful things to it as well. Yeah, Deborah, I have to sort of say in reading your book and reading about the the uh, queer underground at Biola University, uh, sometimes some of these groups like like that that one and others that you chronicle, there's sort of an odd ear resonance with the very early Christian church where they all had to meet in secret. It was like incredibly dangerous to be a Christian. Um, a lot of the groups that you talk about, particularly that one, it's like, it's like we're going to meet, we're going to be, uh, but we're not really sure we want anyone to know where we're meeting or who's at these meetings. 
Yeah, there's a real fear of safety. Um, when I interviewed them, I mean, I'll admit, when I first started talking to them, I thought, you know, you seem to be a little bit paranoid here. <laughs> you know, this is a Christian campus. It's, you know, uh, founded on principles of love and acceptance. Um, why do you need to hide? And, you know, that was, of course, my my, my own ignorance, not having not, never been to a Christian university myself. Um, and what these students were facing was a very hostile environment, one where um, they would they heard people talk about someone coming out as lesbian and they would have they would see the disgusted looks on their friends faces. They would have the college president calling gay relationships illegitimate moral options for the confessing Christian. Um, they felt very, very under attack. And as a result, um, they either were felt isolated and depressed or um, in response to all of that, they they found each other and they found these, they created these, uh, the, the secret network of LGBTQ students who met privately and they really saved each other from losing their faith and losing their hope in life. I mean, one of the things that really just struck me was how um, as they started meeting, every single person who joined the group talked about their own personal history with um suicidal thoughts or ideation or um, attempts at suicide. And that was just this common theme with um, all of these students. But when they found each other, they were able to show the love of Christ that um, they had learned about from the Bible um, but had never experienced in Christian community. Um, And they were able to form their own new Christian community where they could love each other um, and restore each other's faith in um, God and and faith in themselves and in community and the fact that um, and and the belief that, you know, they, they they were valuable and worthy of the love that they were receiving from each other. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to get back with more of Randall Balmer, more of Eliza Aralampalam and Deborah Jian Lee. Feel free to call us, 860-275-7266. We're live here in the afternoon. Or tweet us at WNPR Colin. We're back. We're talking to Deborah Jian Lee, uh, a journalist and author of Rescuing Jesus, How People of Color, Women, and Queer Christians Are Reclaiming Evangelicalism. Liza Aralampalam, Associate Pastor of Riverfront Family Church, a progressive evangelical church in Glastonbury. Randall Balmer is a chair of the Department of Religion at Dartmouth, a fellow at Dartmouth's Ethics Institute, and the author of Redeemer, The Life of Jimmy Carter. Hey, um, so Randall Balmer, I just want to stay with the politics, the sheer politics of this for just a second. So you talked about this one watershed moment, which is kind of a standoff between uh, Bob Jones University uh, and all-white university um, with uh, a tax exemption and the IRS and and implicitly with Jimmy Carter, um, a a progressive evangelical, if ever there was one. But it seems to me there are other watershed moments. And one of them, I would assume, would be the 1980 election. This is a pretty um, interesting election. There are actually three candidates for president, all professing to be born-again Christians. Jimmy Carter, uh, Ronald Reagan, and the much-forgotten John Anderson. Um, So all of them are saying that. Um, Really, in terms of history, behavior, styles, church attendance, Reagan has the the, the sloppiest claim to being a born again Christian, you know. I mean, right. Carter, Carter, and Anderson are demonstrably, you know, living examples of born again and implicitly evangelical Christians. Reagan, it's just basically something he says about himself without a lot of proof to go along with it. But somehow or other, that's where one of the political fault lines happens, right? I mean, the religious right, the moral majority. 
majority, whatever we're going to call them, they back that horse. And it seems to me that's the moment where the political ship pulls away from the harbor with all of the white evangelicals and Ronald Reagan on it. That's absolutely right. And what happened earlier in that decade is even uh, more interesting in some ways, because in the uh, November of 1973, a group of fe- uh, 55 evangelical leaders, theologians, got together in Chicago and drafted the Chicago Declaration of Evangelical Social Concern, which, if you read it, and by the way, it's widely available on the Internet, and I encourage uh, your listeners to read it for themselves, it is a remarkable rehearsal or restatement of the concerns of 19th century evangelicalism, that is, uh, for those on the margins. And what Jimmy Carter's campaign for the presidency does in 1976 is he rallies those voters. And I'm not going to pretend that they were decisive in his election, not by any means. They weren't a large enough group. But there was a, a progressive evangelical voice that was making itself heard in 1976. What happened in the course of Carter's presidency, as you suggested, is that those same evangelical voters turned dramatically against him four years later in favor of not only an episodic churchgoer, as you suggest, but also a man who was divorced and remarried, which at that time was a huge, huge issue for evangelicals. But nevertheless, they backed Ronald Reagan. And I want to return here to that notion of divorce and remarriage to suggest that despite their protestations to the contrary, evangelical social ethics are remarkably protean, uh, that is, uh, changeable and, 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 and movable. Uh, and the, the issue of divorce is, is the, the best example of that. And what we're, happening, what we're seeing happening now, and I agree with Deborah about this, there is among younger evangelicals a much greater interest and receptivity to issues of sexual identity than uh, certainly when I was growing up within this uh, subculture. Uh, what we're happen- what's happening now is that that, too, is being reconsidered, just as divorce was reconsidered in the 1980 election. So, by the way, we've got some interesting calls coming in, and Billy from Hartford, Dana from Hartford, I, w- I promise I will get to you. But, you know, it seems to me, well, first of all, it seems to me that— um, you know, that what uh, Randall just said uh, and what Deborah has said is true and what Liza embodies is true, which that there is this rising movement of progressive evangelicals. But I also feel, Deborah, like they're scattered all over the map. I mean, Liza's mother, Nancy, went out to this uh, meeting in Minneapolis of a group called Open, uh, which is exactly what we're talking about. It's progressive evangelicals, people trying to lead their church in that dire- direction. Uh, I recently uh, read a piece by Charles Redfern, Redfern who's here at, in Connecticut also, a new evangelical writer about a different conference that he went to uh, where they were talking about all these kinds of issues. And and uh, I recently read in Susan Campbell's column about Tom Krattenmaker, uh, who's got a new book out called The Evangelicals You Don't Know, introducing the new generation of Christians. But I feel as though these these movements, Deborah, aren't all very, all very well tied together. I'm not sure. I mean, so many of the th- people that you wrote about were kind of halfway underground, trying to come up from underground or have just sort of you know, broken away somehow. Is is there any kind of coherent coalescing movement of what we're talking about? I think you're right. I think that what we're seeing among the progressive evangelical movement is a degree of fragmentation because it's so new um, and because a new generation is starting to embody this movement. Um, but at the same time, um, because of social media, because people are just so well networked online and across the nation, we're seeing a lot 
more cohesion um, than we would have seen before. And they're starting to mobilize. They're starting to organize. They're starting to find each other. And I think that's what's so significant about this moment in time. Um, they haven't formed a, uh, you know, one single unified national organization, but they are networking with each other um, coalescing at these conferences. And what we're seeing is um, a lot more talk about intersectionality. So not just advocating for the issue that affects your community, say, if you're a racial minority or if you're a uh, sexual minority, but instead finding ways to um, pursue intersectional justice. And I think that's kind of the next phase that we're facing right now. And that's going to kind of unveil a whole host of new stories that um, I think is really exciting. So, you know, uh, Liza's mother, Nancy Butler, the pastor of Riverfront Family Church, went to, as I said, Minneapolis to this conference uh, of like-minded ministers and and gave a speech there. You're going to hear a little clip from it. We should say, if you listen to the show, you know that Liza's mom has uh, ALS. And so uh, you're going to hear her sound a little breathless. It's because her lung capacity isn't what it could be. Um, But um, she, one of the things that she did, this is exactly where John jumping off place from where you just were, Deborah, is to talk about that, that for some of these churches, gay rights and gay marriage has been kind of a canary in a coal mine. It's like just such an obvious thing for some people that we need to be fair, we need to be right, we need to be just about that, that it's kind of a a turning point for some groups. But as you're saying, Deborah, then everybody else, other groups have their own agendas. There are sort of things that they can't live without in terms of social change. Um, Nancy Butler in this speech did something I regarded as kind of daring, which is to challenge the notion of sola scriptura, the notion that evangelical churches rely exclusively and dispositively on the Bible, on what's written in Scripture to decide any important issue. Um, and Nancy wondered, you know, how they would hi- handle the next issue that comes up, uh, progressive evangelicals uh, or other kinds of evangelicals, uh, if they relied on sola scriptura. So let's say um, the next time a controversy comes out of the pike, I'll give you an example. Let's say uh, transgender bathrooms. So the old way would be, hmm, what does the Bible say? about transgender bathrooms. We scour scour the whole Bible, right, from Genesis to Revelation. What does the Bible say about transgender bathrooms? And sure enough, we find some material in there, and then we say, "Uh uh-oh, it's the mean thing to do. Now what are we going to do, right? So now we're stuck. We have to do the mean thing because we're like Billy Graham. We've bowed our knees to the altar of Sola Scriptura. We have no choice. We have to just have faith that it's loving, even though it looks like it's mean. Or we can do the merciful thing and go down that Romans 1 rabbit hole where all debate, 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 trying to make scriptures say something that maybe it's not the most obvious interpretation, to be honest with you. I mean, I think the conservatives often have a stronger logical scriptural argument. It's just that we don't want to be jerks, so we just come up with a different one. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> That's what happens with Sola Scriptura, is that kind of thinking. But what if instead we said, what does Jesus think about transgender bathrooms? What does Jesus think about this? Now, of course, we have to read our Bibles. We have to pray, do all those same things. But it's a different question. It's a very different question. We have a living person who's going to speak to us in prayer, speak to us in community, help us to see Scripture through the light of the Holy Spirit. He played pretty fast and loose with the rules while he was here. So Jesus helps us see scripture um, in a different light. 
I should say that uh, after that speech, one of the leaders of the conference uh, came up to Nancy in her wheelchair, kissed her on the forehead and said, total heresy, but you can get away with it <laughs> because you're so nice. Uh, but it's, So that's a pretty radical thing, Liza, to really, for, evangel- for an evangelical to say, well, we can either you know, torture the Bible until it says what we want it to say, <laughs> what we think it needs to say, or we can think about this pretty differently. I mean, it's radical, but I think everybody, evangelicals included, picks and chooses what they want out of the Scripture. I mean— the Apostle Paul in, uh, in Timothy says that women are the cause of the fall and the only way they can be redeemed is through childbearing. I don't know a single evangelical that would say a woman who hasn't born a child is, you know, therefore condemned and or would say that she is redeemed through childbearing. So I think we all pick and choose the things we want from Scripture and, and evangelicals are no different. Um, but, yeah, I think it does shed a different a different light on things when you— look at Jesus instead of the, the actual words. All right, let's grab a call or two. A lot of people calling in here today. Billy in Hartford. Hi, Billy. Hi. So I've been listening to um, to you guys, as, actually, as I was driving, but um, an interesting just observation, and, and then I guess their point, therefore point, um, you know, you talked about the students um, uh, at the Christian University who were sort of in secret, um, and I recall the exact same experience as a Christian in a very secular environment, um, and just a real sharp juxtaposition between the two experiences. And I think, for me personally, um, what that experience has done for me over the years, and that you know, we're talking 15 years ago, but certainly it's helped me to be a little bit more open. Um, and I should even say a little bit more open. I'm probably the oddball within my own Christian community as a result. It's this idea of creating community where these conversations can be had in love. And I think if you're going to get anywhere with this, it sort of starts with the loving conversation. I think we spend so much time labeling, um, you know, the, 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 these so-called, you know, identifiers rather than really just the person it's themselves. Um, and I think it's when you have the, these these same sorts of experiences, even if it is in a different context, that sort of forces you to come to a place where you face the truth of, am I really being a real Christian when I've been subjected to the same types of experiences and I and wasn't shown that compassion? Um, but anyway, I just wanted to make that observation. Thanks for your call, Billy. Um, Randall Balmer, I just want to go back to you and to what uh, Nancy Butler said in that speech. So, I mean, one way to look at this and this is my own, you know, untutored way. I was at listening to a, a talk. Uh, uh, I was at a talk last night given by a legal scholar who said that uh, if a reasonably intelligent Martian came to Earth and looked at our Constitution and then looked what went on, he would have a hard time connecting these two things that we really don't run our, our legal system and our government according to the Constitution. And it often seems to me that if that same Martian went and looked at everything that Jesus says in the Bible and then looked at Christianity as it is mostly practiced, uh, particularly when it's practiced to uh, make people feel excluded uh, or persecuted or not tolerated or not embraced or not capable of accessing uh, the grace of God, uh, that same Martian would be incredibly confused. Uh, I just read these four books of the gospel and then I just watch what you're doing. I don't see the connection. So it it is, with that in mind, Nancy Butler's words uh, about uh, replacing sola scriptura with sola Jesus are kind of interesting. Absolutely, and it brings to mind uh, Gandhi's famous uh, quote, I'm not going to be able to get it directly, but he said something about, uh, I love your Christ, it's your Christians I really don't care for. <laughs> and I think that, that happens too often. I think, and, and, and part of the issue for evangelicals is that it's very 
it's very easy to settle into a kind of a dualistic worldview, uh, us against them sort of thing. And I think that goes back to the Cold War and all sorts of other things. And uh, with the religious right kind of in charge of politics for evangelicals, tragically enough, I think you have this this sort of uh, angry, dualistic, condemnatory rhetoric that I agree, uh, I find utterly at odds with uh, the New Testament. As I read the New Testament, what Jesus is saying time and time and time again is that love always trumps the law. And he gets into trouble with the uh, with the religious uh, leaders of his day because he's, he, he, he flouts the law. And uh, that is to me, the message, that's the beauty of uh, the New Testament, and I say that as a person of faith myself, uh, that love always wins out, and that seems to me is the message that uh, evangelicals should be uh, should be delivering. All right, we're going to grab a quick break. We're going to come back more, with more of our three guests. We've got some phone calls, too, and our time is limited. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Calling. Our interns are Nate Gagnon and Zach LaSala. The part of Bill Curry was played by Rick Warren. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff's pre-show prayer circle, visit our website, wnpr.org slash on tomorrow's show, the return of Bill Griffith. And now, back to Colin. All right. Well, we're talking to Deborah Jean Lee. Uh, her book is Rescuing Jesus, How People of Color, Women, and Queer Christians Are Reclaiming Evangelicalism. Liza Aralampalam, Associate Pastor at Riverfront Family Church in Glastonbury, and Randall Balmer, uh, Chair of the Department of Religion at Dartmouth, author of Redeemer, The Life of Jimmy Carter. We're talking about progressive evangelicals. So, Deborah, one question that anybody, particularly anybody reading your book, and your book does describe the plight and the progress of people, who, people of color, uh, women uh, who identify as feminists, uh, queer Christians, um, uh, you know, what they do if they still also identify as evangelicals. Although one question that a lot of people might have is, why don't you just pick up and leave and go someplace where all this stuff, go to a mainline Protestant church where all this stuff is fine. You know, the, all the things that you're worried about, whether it's socioeconomic uh, injustice and structural uh, problems in society and uh, and and uh, equality among the genders and equality based on sexual orientation. It's all just cool in some UCC church or, or elsewhere. Why not just do that? I mean, and is that what you essentially did? That's such a good question. And, and you know, that's a question that I asked as well. Um, there, what's really difficult to do is to leave the evangelical community because it's like family. It's like saying to someone, why don't you just leave your family where you have all this drama and go join another person's family? Um, it's not that easy because there's history, there's culture, like Liza mentioned. Uh, there's a whole network of people who support you and love you. And so it's hard to choose. And I think in the past, um, there kind of was 
this choice that people had to make. Am I, can I be gay and Christian? Uh, should I just be gay and go into the secular world and be part of the queer community? Or should I deny that part of myself and be part of the Christian community? You know, if I'm in the queer community in the secular world, do I need to deny my Christianity? And there was this, there was this choice. And I think bef- before that was a real choice, but today that's kind of become a false choice. People have realized that they can be both. They can be both, you know, a person of color and also uh, deeply evangelical, um, a feminist and deeply evangelical. And I think um, that decision to leave is, is, is less, um, is less, some people are making that decision to leave, but more people are choosing to stay because they want to retain that heritage and retain um, their place in that really important community. Um one interesting response to this uh, really did come from Nancy Butler, um, mother of Liza, pastor of Riverfront, uh, at that uh, conference in uh, Minnesota. She was talking about um, her own efforts, as which she came to Connecticut. There really aren't that many evangelical churches in Connecticut. Uh, and uh, she tried to dwell in a series of mainline Protestant churches. And she still found that certain things were missing. Uh, let's hear her talk about that. As the years rolled by in mainline Protestant churches, I kept missing things from the evangelical tradition. I miss people who had one hour quiet time. Can you imagine a one hour quiet time every day? Just building a relationship with God, reading your Bible and hearing him personally. I miss small groups, people who are really serious and intentional about reshaping their lives to be like Jesus. I missed really great preaching where God's word was related to my everyday life. I miss people who would raise their hands and cry when they worshiped because their intimacy with God was so profound. I even miss tithing. You know, tithing was a way of showing, God, you're number one in my life. I give you the first 10% because that's what my whole life is organized around. I miss dangerous mission trips. I love evangelicals. They're like, you might get malaria or dengue fever. Uh, You might get a skin disease. You might be kidnapped by terrorists. And they're like, yay, let's go, you know, so. But I didn't see that in the mainline church. There's kind of a I'm willing to die for Jesus mentality. Or I think of my children's generation, they're adopting orphans like crazy, you know, both internationally and domestically. And people are like, you're nuts to have that many kids. But evangelicals are willing to do that crazy stuff. They really believe and take up your cross and follow Jesus. And I don't know anybody else who has that level of commitment. So, um, Liza, uh, it's hard to improve on what your mom (laughs) says about stuff like this. But that's a difference that I noticed, too, that there's a stylistic difference. And underneath the stylistic difference is the kind of rootedness, Mm -hmm. which is not to say that mainline Protestant churches are full of casual Christians. I mean, there are some and then some not so much. But there is some difference that she's getting at there. Yeah, I think my experience in mainline, I mean, I grew up kind of straddling mainline and the evangelical church as a product of my mom, who you just heard. Um, but I think my the main main difference that I noted was just the level of commitment. So in evangelical communities, like she said, it's like it's your world and your commitment to God, your relationship with God and your um, commitment to the church is your number one priority. And the mainline churches here that I've attended People are missing church all the time because their kids have soccer games on Sunday morning and church is one of 10 different activities on their on their radar. And, and therefore, God is one of 10 different activities on their radar. And so when something can get cut, oftentimes it's, it's that time with God, it's, it's church. And that the lack of commitment, I think, um, 
hurts the the community building piece. And I think the reason the evangelical community is so strong and and why it's so hard to leave and why it does have that family feeling, like Deborah mentioned, is because of that really intense level of commitment that um, that I would miss if I if I left the, my church or. That's nomination. Okay, we just have a couple of minutes left here. And so, um, Randall Balmer, the stupidest thing that uh, anybody can do is try to predict the course uh, of religion in America. So I'm going to ask you to do that. Um, and whoop, uh, maybe I'm not going to ask you to do that. Oh, no, that's, that's Dana. No, <laughs> Randall's still here. So, I mean, there's, there's that was, was that Randall that we just lost? All right, then I'll have Deborah do it. Uh, <laughs> so, um, the um, w- there's two questions here. One of them is, can this movement, Deborah, that you're describing in the book, can it coalesce? Can it thrive? Can it be something? Uh, something is, I, I think it's hard for something to, to survive simply as a reaction to something else. It has to be the thing that it is. Um, and you seem to believe in the book that that's going to happen. Absolutely. I mean, what I'm seeing is that this isn't a simply a reaction to the religious right. Yes, on one hand, um, there's this new generation of evangelicals who are very disenchanted with the culture wars, um, but they're not simply moving away from it. They're digging deep into the Gospels. They're digging deep into the Bible and saying, look, the social justice, the social gospel is at the core of Jesus's message, um, enacting social justice, being missional, being evangelical about how we go into the world and try to try to change the world um, in the spirit of how Jesus instructed us, that is our mission. Uh, and, and I think that's what's so astounding to me is that um, this group of people, they're organized and they're, they're drawing from their faith, but they're not isolating themselves from the world. Instead, they're putting themselves into the world. They're people like Lisa Sharon Harper, uh, one of the characters that I write about in my book, she's she works with sojourners, and she is um, on the front lines of the Black Lives Matter movement. And she's not only participating in that movement, but she's working with conservative white evangelicals to bring them into that movement as well, to say, hey, look, this is what the gospel calls us to do. It calls us to stand with the vulnerable and the oppressed. And the same thing with the LGBTQ movement. We're seeing um, not people reacting to conservative evangelicals, but instead going back to the very communities that rejected them and saying, I want to love you. I want to know you. And I want you to know me and my story and why we're both part of the same family of God. And it's those relationships that evangelicals focus on. And it's that that love and that um, turning to the Bible that's really allowing this conversation to thrive and flourish. All right. We have to stop there. Thank you, Deborah Jian Lee, author of Rescuing Jesus, Liza Aralampalam, associate pastor for Riverfront Family Church in Glastonbury. Randall Balmer, uh, author of Redeemer, The Life of Jimmy Carter. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan for pulling this all together. And uh, thanks to Hugh Blumenfeld, who's singing here. from his terrible fate Separation of church and state So let's all sing out praises to That long-haired radical socialist too Hear me, my flock. You don't have to do what some old book tells you to do. You don't have to obey patriarchal, sexist, out-of-date rules subject to individual interpretation just because so many around you do the same thing. You don't have to be sheep. Oh, right. Sorry.